0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates' Needs a Job, the podcast. I was pumped. I walked into the office yesterday, two days ago, and I said, Colin, man, I really need a podcast guest this week. The guys that I'm supposed to do had to delay a week. I need somebody. He goes, man, I'll give you Robert Smith. And I sat there for the next 24 hours listening to all my Cure albums going, this is going
1: to be the greatest (laughs) thing ever. I love the Cure (laughs) Hey, Rob. <laughs> not not the same. Don't have the not the same jet black hair. Uh, that's so funny. I've gotten that a lot where it's usually like the older generation where they're like, hey, um, you know, you your name is the same as like the lead singer, of The Cure, right? It's like, yes, I know. I know their music now. It's like, it's okay.
0: Well, I love the fact that I arguably backhanded complimented you on <laughs> you're not that Robert Smith and you went right back with, yeah, it's mainly the older guys <laughs> that I get that from, so... Anyway, Touche, very well played. <laughs> no, but I'm actually happy to to have you here cuz we've never met before. Right. Um, but I've known John Donovan for a long time. Yep. Really good dude. So tell me who you are. Tell me how you met John Donovan. Tell me what you're doing with John Donovan these days.
1: Yeah. It's actually a winding story, you know, when you think about energy investment banking and private equity, it's typically you go from Memorial High School to UT to Credit Suisse, and then you go to either private equity or hedge fund. And uh, so I grew up in Friendswood, which is just south of Houston, and uh, knew that I wanted to do finance down the road with my career, like in some capacity. And so when I was in high school, it was in the, I was in high school from 06 to 2010, which was basically in the midst of the, one of the biggest bubbles ever in the financial crisis. And so opened an options trading account on thinkorswim when I was like 14 years old trading and got the finance and like the trading bug back then. And that was like very technical analysis, mumbo jumbo that I don't really believe in a lot of that stuff now, but that was like the impetus for ultimately the winding path. that's kind of taken me to get to where I am now. And so I played football in yeah, high that's school. It's interesting
0: because I did the same thing when I was young. My dad allowed me to open a brokerage account <laughs> And I forget, he gave me $1,000 to go trade. And I bought San Juan Racing Association, (laughs) which was a horse track in San Juan, I believe. Bought it at like six. It went to seven. I sold it and then bought Quanex. Yeah. Which I don't even know what they did. But what was funny about it is... Back in the day, I was actually a value investor Yeah. because yeah. I looked at PE ratios. I found something that was at its lowest point, bought it, you know, wound oh, yeah. up doing well and all that. And then dad is a radiologist, but he actually mm-hmm. created, he he was a co-founder of a company that automated radiology stuff. So right. your reports and all that. He's like, do you want to roll that money into this company? Oh yeah, lost it all. <laughs>
1: That's, I had a similar occurrence where it was leading. It was probably the, I guess, the summer of 08 where rumblings of the financial crisis were coming. The housing market was obviously bubbling over. And so I started buying puts on all the banks, basically. And uh, nice. like Citigroup, JP Morgan. I didn't go like the super junky stuff like Bear Stearns um, or anything like that, but made a lot of money. And I say a lot of money. It was like five or 10 grand for a high school kid. Um, That's bank, dude. But then lost it because I like stayed bearish too long where I was like still buying puts on companies like for the next like four or five months and the bottom happened in the spring of 09, uh, roughly. And so you learn the lessons where you can't stay in like one state forever. Um, But that was like the very first start on the just the finance in general. And um, when I was in high school, I I played safety and was recruited to go to a couple Ivy League schools and didn't make the cut for UPenn. And I was recruited to play at Cornell. And the head coach resigned the spring, basically, where I was supposed to go up there. And so I was left with a fallback option of, well, I know that Cornell would obviously have a much better finance program than any other school, non-Ivy League, that I would go to because I didn't apply to UT or anything like that. Um, And so I had applied to LSU, got a full scholarship for academics. And I was like, well, this is a no-brainer where my dad was in the uh, mortgage and housing industry. And so it was like, we didn't have a ton of money. And so I basically paying for school was one of the biggest, uh, things that kind of drove me to go there. And I was looking at LSU, they didn't have the best business program. So I was like, what else are they really good at that I can use as a stepping stool to ultimately get into finance down the road? Um, this was very, very early on in the shale revolution. Dude, like you thought all this shit when you were 18, it was, <laughs> and it, with the help of 17? my 17, yeah, yeah, junior year and got, with the, in high school with the help of my dad. Cause it it's he's always been someone that if you have a roadblock that hits you what's the next best thing you can do to still get around that roadblock and keep going down the path um so these were all the options on the table like i remember very vividly getting like the rejection letter from upenn and thinking like okay if this doesn't happen what are the backup plans then the thing with cornell happened um but at the time so Show revolution had started early say 2007 was building up um, and during school, my year of enrollment at LSU in petroleum engineering, I think was the, either the record or the second highest ever. So it was when petroleum engineers were in massive demand, um, and uh, banks were hiring petroleum engineers to go onto the A and D side. And I was always told that you could potentially pivot from A and D to the actual deal team and then go from the deal team to private equity or hedge funds. So I was like, okay, I'll try that. Well, didn't like petroleum engineering at all in school. you if-
0: Freaking masochist. Yeah. It was, sadist. <laughs> you know, it's
1: like, what the hell? I'm going to go get a petroleum engineering <laughs> degree just to go do this. It was, and, and I always had that end goal in mind of okay, I know that finance is where I want to go eventually. And so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And if I keep working, I'll get there. Um, but I also, so I'd walked on to the football team my freshman year at LSU and uh, there was, I was the only petroleum engineering major. There was a mechanical. (laughs) Shocking! (laughs) I know you wouldn't uh, see too many of those. And then there was a couple mechanical engineering majors, and that was pretty much it from the engineering side. And so, needless to say, practice was always the priority, and school was not as much the priority. And so it made a very. So who's on that team? Uh, Fournette Leonard Fournette. He was a little bit later. So okay, this was the one where my sophomore year we went undefeated regular season beat Alabama in the Game of the Century, um, where it was the 9-6. to Drew Allemar had three field goals to basically win the game. And uh, then we went to the SEC Championship, where we just destroyed Georgia. Then we went to the National Championship. This is when the BCS was still in play. So everyone voted after Oklahoma State. Uh, I can't remember if they lost or if they beat. I think they beat Iowa State in the Big 12 Championship, or one of the end games of the season. So basically, they knocked them out of the playoffs. So we had to play Alabama again in the postseason for the BCS championship. And I don't know, like someone needs to look this stat up, but I don't know if anyone's ever beat Nick Saban two times in one year. And so that was the team where we had Odell Beckham, uh, Eric Reed, Tyron Matthew,
0: uh, Harold
1: Simon, um, our quarterback and our quarterbacking wasn't that great. I mean, as LSU until Joe Burrow, hasn't really had the best quarterbacks. Um, but we had a stacked team in defense, like and even like Michael Brockers, who went to the NFL, um, we had, I think 10 first round draft picks or some, some crazy oh, stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. No, I remember yeah. that. And so everyone asked me like, Hey, did you get a bunch of playing time? I'm like, well, no, um, I played safety. And the first two strings on the depth chart, all went to the NFL from cornerback safety linebackers. So it was really difficult to, to get playing time. Um, so, yeah, that was it was a fun experience though.
0: So did you know this little stat? There is one college that has played Alabama more than once and has never lost to him. Do you know who that is?
1: Is he alma mater?
0: Of course it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> rice University. <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: back in the 50s, played Alabama three times, including that cotton bowl game yeah. where the rice guy's running down the sideline and, yeah, uh, yeah. and the Alabama guy comes off the bench and tackles right. him. Uh yeah, Rice the Rice Institute is three and zero against Alabama. That's
1: amazing. I guess that Been was scared to play us ever since. <laughs> was that right before Bear Bryant, or was he was that during his like the beginning that's, of his? That's era?
0: gotta be because Bear Bryant was what with the Aggies in the 40s, yeah, and early 50s. So yeah, I think Bear Bryant was there. Those were the Jess Neely days, yeah,
1: um for Rice. Yeah, my my grand so my whole dad's side of the family went to Alabama and are big Alabama fans and so they always would like they got one of their claim to fame is they got to meet Bear Bryant and he like was a ladies man so signed the picture to Louise my grandmother, um, so my my grandfather. And that's was okay the story it. they yeah. tell you <laughs> exactly. That's the story that I'm told. Yeah, that's a,
0: my my grandmother was a wonderful woman. <laughs> yeah. We shall leave it at that. The uh, you, you know what I did that was kind of wild Bear Bryant related um, was. When he was at AM, he did the Junction Boys. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that story, oh, yeah. but takes the team to Junction, wears them out, half the kids quit, whatever. Right. It's one of those epic stories. Where they stayed in Junction is actually owned by AM to this day, and it's a nature preserve now. So now you That's go funny. out there with your kids, and you find owl pellets, and you cut them open to find out what the owls have been eating, and you, know, you go out and you see bats at night and all that sort of stuff. But literally the rooms and the cots that those guys stayed in are still out there. And the guy out there will say "Those probably are the same mattresses. We just haven't oh, moved yeah. them. Yeah. So
1: that's wild. I like that. As you think about, I've been telling some friends that I've been watching a lot of hockey recently, because it's a sport that's one of the least changed from like the inception where football has been changed massively. So you look back to like that time period where obviously technology with helmets and stuff like that. But just the impact that you had back in the day, like you could break a finger, a hand and arm and still go back in the game and oh, get yeah. like multiple concussions. Um, but yeah, no, I know I can imagine the pain that those guys had to endure like two days in Baton Rouge in the summer were horrible. Um, well,
0: you're too way too <laughs> young to remember this, but when I was in junior high playing football, they denied you water. Yeah. I mean, you didn't get water at practice. You got I salt mean, that tablets would... or pickle juice, or what would you get? No, you didn't even get that. It was like, <laughs> you need to toughen up. And, yeah, we'd get a squirt of water all practice. Now yeah. you go to jail for doing that to kids. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. It's changed a lot. Yeah. No, it really has. That's wild, the amount of talent on that LSU team. That's really cool. So – you're at LSU, you want to get in finance while you're being a petroleum engineer. I have no idea, but anyway, do all that.
1: So how do you get a job? So I, I didn't have internships in school. I had like the football team basically helped you get a part-time job during summer because they wanted you to stay close to campus. And uh, leading up to my senior year, I started mailing out, basically, I mailed out a hundred letters roughly to LSU alumni in the finance community, whether it was um, guys at private equity funds, at investment banks, CFOs. Right, of you did p- old school, companies. little hustle. I like this. very old school. Um, I like the cold calling method too. So I would follow that up with a cold call to figure out who has what. Like, I just want to get in the door. I just want to intern for you. I know that I don't have that finance background, but I can learn really quickly. And
0: uh, so I'm gonna put you on the spot: who was really really cool, and who was a big prick through that. <laughs>
1: So he probably doesn't remember this, but Eric Debusland at Black Gold was one of the guys that I talked to that was super helpful. He was actually one of the only people that responded um, and was able to get on the phone for like 45 minutes to kind of talk through various options. Um,
0: I don't know Eric well, but he's uh, good friends with my former business partner, Mike yeah. Hines, and Mike thinks he's a great guy. So that's not surprising. Yeah,
1: And I... Uh, He wasn't, so I think he wasn't even an LSU alumni, but someone had connected me to him. And then there was, I can't even remember who it was, but it was the CFO of Swift Energy that sent basically like, not a bad, bad letter, but it was like, you're not going to have any luck doing this. Like, you better just go be an engineer at some random company. Um, And so that was like one of the more demoralizing pieces. But the guy that helped me the most-
0: Came from Swift, I
1: wouldn't worry about (laughs) it. (laughs) But the- Of the winding path that led me to meet John was it was basically five levels of connections where there was this one older engineer that had graduated from LSU back in like the 50s or 60s. He wrote me back a handwritten letter that said, Hey, I drive from Trustville, Alabama, which is up just north of Birmingham, down to LSU and then over to Midland to go consult on projects. And he said, Next time I come down, I'll let you know I'm coming like that way. Let's meet up and I'll try to see how I can help you. And uh so we met at the Starbucks across from the Walmart um right off of I10 for about 2 hours. He we just talked about stuff cuz my family was my grandparents lived in Anniston, Alabama, which is only 45 minutes from where he lived. Um but he basically at the end of the day said, "I don't know exactly the people that are doing what you want to do, but I know guys that could probably help you." And one of them was a gentleman named Paul Abadie that he was one of his friends in a consulting capacity that he was working with a private equity backed company. And so he said, hey, I'll introduce you to this guy. If he doesn't know someone, or if he doesn't have something for you, he'll definitely know the guy. And so Paul invited me to a dinner with a company that John had helped raise capital for called Taos Resources. The so Logan recruiter um, yeah, was the CEO. Logan. And then David Eberstein was also the CFO and he was there. And there's a couple other young professionals as well that were like UT alumni. And so it was a dinner of young professionals that they invited people down to Houston. So I went down, or I drove over from Baton Rouge. Logan was there, David was there, Paul was there and uh, was talking to David since he was the CFO had a banking background. I was like, this guy is definitely gonna know like someone that I can talk to. And uh, as I was talking to him, he was like, I got just the guy for you to talk to. Like if he doesn't have something, he definitely he knows everyone in this industry. So he's going to know who you should talk to. And that was John Donovan. And so I called John, this was, that was in the summer. Um, so I did an extra semester. This was the summer before I graduated. And that winter after I graduated, I ended up calling John, talking to him right before Christmas. He said, come interview with us. Uh, we'll see if we have something open here that we can work on. And so his former partner at the time uh, was the one that I initially interviewed with, and. It's really funny. So I am from the South and his partner was from the north, um, from New York specifically. And I hadn't been like acquainted with the whole private equity or banking model where people were wearing suits and ties. So I was wearing a sports coat with my Costa del Mar sunglasses on a croaky as I walk in and kept it on the entire time and thought nothing of it until they made a comment later about it. But the interview went really well and they offered me an internship uh shortly thereafter. And so started. Basically, I spent eighty to one hundred hours a week just soaking up information, trying to learn as much about finance. Well, do as
0: this. Possible. give give the Donovan capital commercial here for folks that don't yeah. know what what Donovan Capital is.
1: Yeah. so we have it's the the typical merchant banking model where we have basically three verticals now where one of them is our advisory services platform that is doing uh, m and a transactions, capital raises, uh, restructuring things on the just pure advisory side that you would comp to like a big investment bank. Um, And then on the other side of the house is our private equity, division where we're making smaller investments, say the five to 25 million range in energy service companies broadly. Um, So touching things like generate like equipment rental, uh, casing, running, drilling, frack, um, even all the way to the technology side. Now with, the whole advent of ESG and, and the focus on that, we're looking at more decarbonization, low carbon kind of solutions for energy. Um, a little bit on the EMP side, but just given the smaller check size, it's not you don't want to be five percent of a Permian Basin pure play that has a commitment of five hundred million. Um, so we're not really looking at those deals, but we will look at special situations on the EMP side. Um, and then uh, we recently launched our ABS vertical, which is still underneath the banking division, but doing asset backed securitizations for operators. So we were early in a company called Reza Energy where we were the first equity in alongside a couple other high net worth guys. And they pioneered the asset backed securitization for non-op working interest in, in oil and gas.
0: Okay, explain that to me. And let me give you just a little context on that. If you have a pig, and you put lipstick on the pig and maybe a pretty little dress, it's still not going to win a freaking beauty contest. Am I wrong on that? Tell, You're, <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. So,
1: it, so what is an asset-backed
0: <laughs> security now that I've totally trashed it?
1: <laughs> so it, my, when we first started exploring this concept, my mind went immediately to the CLOs, CMOs, CDOs that happened in 2008 where... The initial advent of it, where you're basically packaging up a bunch of loans um, and then high grading the debt quality over time and also high grading the returns you can get. But it got blown out of proportion where people were putting in really junky stuff and that ultimately spiraled out of control, which caused the financial crisis. So my mind went immediately to that whenever we start thinking about this concept. But in the early days, though, it really works as a financial product where For Reza, for example, they have interests in roughly 1,500 wells. Um, So they're very small non-op working interests. So there's a really diversified well base. Um, There's a diversified commodity base. There's also a diversified operator base. And uh, your security, so for the, the ABS facility, they're basically launching a SPV that you're dropping in a certain working interest for the wells that pay down on a pretty fast amortization schedule. Um, but your loan is collateralized directly to the working interest of the well. So it's a way, if used improperly, it can have negative consequences. But if used correctly, it's an alternative to um, today more expensive RBL facilities or even like a company like Battalion that had Libra Plus 700, um, which is a really expensive term loan that they put in place. So it's an alternative financing vehicle where if you have stable PDP, that has fairly predictable cash flows, fairly predictable um, operating expenses. You hedge that. You basically hedge out that entire profile and provide that to the ABS underwriters.
0: So, putting on my banking hat, and it's eighteen months dated because you know when you get fired <laughs> and you're not working anymore, the last <laughs> thing you want to do is go talk about the RBL market. Yeah. So I haven't done it. You know that's been one of the nice things, but. If we kind of go back in the day, we look at PDP PV ten. Maybe you're getting a sixty yep. percent advance rate on that. You know, so if you got a hundred, they're going to allow you to borrow borrow sixty. You know, they're going to be five ish six percent, something like right. that. What's this ABS product? Is it a higher advance rate, lower cost, all the above? Yeah. So and 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 how does that happen? Cause yeah. It, seems like it's the same underlying risk.
1: It is, it is basically the same risk. Um, the advance rates can be more. It's really situation dependent. Um, diversified is a name that a lot of people have kind of seen what they've done with their various ABS facilities. I think it's the advantage of an ABS facility is one, there's a little bit less risk on the operator. Yes, you're giving up your working interest initially um but it's securitized directly to the wells in to the non-op working interest itself so you don't have that kind of overarching blanket uh collateral base to the entire company or to a field or however you want to collateralize the the typical rbl um so there's that piece the main piece where it's really and So tr-
0: is that ultimately kind of saving you bankruptcy headache? Yes. Is that the deal? Yeah. Okay, got you. I you know, because, I mean, at the end of the day, the bank says, well, we're, secure. yeah. we're <laughs> secured by all these assets. And it's like, great, royalty checks are due next week. Yeah. Good luck operating the asset. Whoa, hold on, time Exactly. Out. <laughs> so you're saying you take ownership under the ABS as the quote-unquote lender. You take ownership of the working interest, so it's just flat-out yours.
1: Yeah, it's okay. in that SPV where insurance companies, endowments, people with really low cost of capital that want higher yielding investments but fairly safe investments at least with the way everything's structured today it's a way for them to one have basically direct interest in the spv um, that is that abs facility and then the main thing though
0: so you could theoretically advance more be lower costs as a lender because you've gotten rid of the let's just call it the chance that the bankruptcy headache happens yeah, and all that. Okay, that's okay, a, I'll buy that. You, that's a, You've made one point. I didn't <laughs> think you were going to make one point, but you made one.
1: All right. That's it. That's a piece of it. And then the the covenant side, so the main covenants are the production has to be basically fully hedged out where cuz the insurance company doesn't want to take any commodity price risk. And so it's you're fully hedging so for the Reza example, it was a five-year amortization schedule, but they hedged out for seven years. So there's no basically no overlap of hedges where you're going to have massive commodity price risk. Um, but other than that, there's really no covenants associated with the, the the ABS facilities. And that's like the biggest piece, where covenant restrictions have forced a lot of bad decisions over the last five or six years. And so that's a piece where operators, it's a little bit more attractive to those guys.
0: Yeah, I would say the operator, because that would... You know, historically, the covenants never really got you. And then all of a sudden, prices went down and you had no EBITDA. And you're like, oh, shit, we're violating this covenant. Yeah. I didn't know this. Kick the can. Uh, kick the can. Yeah. So, so I mean, is there just a fundamental different investor base that's willing to take a lower return for this versus, versus a bank? Or are there other fe- features that would make the ABS... Cheaper and/or higher advance rate.
1: I think that's that's mainly the the big components. I mean, it's insurance companies are really interested in this product, um, and at the same time, another benefit is that you have a lot of capital. In one of our pitches, is that to the operator specifically, there's a lot of capital fleeing the space, especially on the banking side, where there's you have to basically be Devon Pioneer, uh, Conoco to get you know quality facilities or bond the bond market as well. Um, so for guys, yeah, you gotta, that are-
0: you got to be paying banking fees.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so for guys that are a little bit smaller, but still have fairly sizable asset bases, so think about big private equity backed operators in the Permian Basin, Eagle Ford. Um, for them, where the RBL market or the bond market isn't as accessible, this is a way for them to get some of that cash flow kind of pulled out. Um, so that's like another pitch that we have.
0: So A-B- A-B-S, ABS 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 exists. Because oil and gas hasn't screwed over the insurance companies yet.
1: (laughs) I don't, I mean, you think about some of the private equity firms that have lost money. I've got to imagine there's big insurance companies that have had fairly sizable write downs, whether that's been realized or not.
0: Yeah. No, Um, that's, yeah. There's a lot
1: of, I mean, this industry loves to kick the can in any way that they can. And so
0: um,
1: a lot of it hasn't been realized yet, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Trust our marks. It's it's fine. (laughs) So um, I guess does the insurance market looking at an ABS product think through ESG type stuff? Is it quote unquote bad because it's hydrocarbon or because it's debt, they get a pass from it?
1: Yeah. So in this kind of segues into, so we're also raising our, another private equity fund and we're basically seeing real time, the difference between it could be the same large global insurance company or asset manager that their debt arm is. will definitely look at oil and gas. They're like, yeah, we'll look at this. We want high yielding stuff. Um, but at the same time, on the equity side, they want nothing to do with it, which is a really it's an interesting dichotomy that has really emerged over the last 18 months. And um, I do a lot on Twitter. And so I posted basically the emergence of this ESG narrative and uh, decarbonization. It's really skyrocketed. Um, October 2019 is when that kind of took off. So d- to directly answer your question though, there are features of certain loans where we're working with various credit rating, credit rating agencies to do um, basically like a kicker that if you meet this certain ESG score, then we'll reduce your coupon by say 10 basis points. Um, but if you don't meet that ESG score and you exceed it, then we'll reduce your coupon by five to 10 basis points or increase it. Um, so there are, the ESG piece is coming into the market in terms of like pricing wise, but that's really in its infancy because the rating metrics for ESG is still very early and there's not really like a great standard um, that guys are doing. But people like uh, MSCI, Fitch, Morningstar, they're all coming out with their ESG rating products, which are kind of flowing through to the debt markets.
0: Interesting. Because, I mean, you could we raised Energy Fund 8 I think we closed it in 2018, and, yeah, there was a lot of ESG talk yeah. on uh, that fund. And even Fund uh, 7, which we closed in 2016, I mean, that was uh, – we had ESG talk. Uh, what happened on Fund 6, which was 2012, um, we had a big, large state pension looking at us. Mm-hmm. And we had an hour-long ESG discussion. This is, call it, 2011, 2012. And we passed. I mean, we got like a C-plus on that. Mm -hmm. So we passed. But, man, it was an hour. It was a grilling, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what we did for Energy Fund 6 is we actually created an ESG conference for all our CEOs had to show up. Now yep. we took them out to Scottsdale and wined and dined them and played golf and had fun. But we were in a conference room for a good two-thirds of a day going yeah. through a bunch of that stuff. And what we found was that and we created a scorecard. Right. So at the end of the end of the year, we had this many accidents, whatever, you know, all that. And um it actually was a positive thing raising energy fund six because we brought it up first. Right. Hey, just so you know, we have this, the ESG. We get the scorecard, blah, blah, blah. And it wound up having people go, Oh, okay, great. We need to follow up on ESG. Yeah. But they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but then fund eight, 2018, it's like, we need to follow up on ESG. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <know>? So yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's real. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's real and it's going further. You know where folks are just saying, "No, we're out."
1: Oh, I mean, fundraising-wise, I can't tell how many people that big, either pensions or endowments that have actively invested in oil and gas over the last fifty to hundred years won't even look at it. Won't like anything with fossil fuels. We're completely out. It has to be renewable. If we're investing in energy, it's renewable or energy transition, um, but nothing to do with oil and gas. So there's there's a sizable amount of capital that won't even touch it anymore.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's real, and you know I was talking to. I'll distort this story a little so people can't figure it out. But you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine runs a private equity fund. I was asking him, "Hey, how, what's the fundraising market like these days?" He goes, "Man, five years ago, you would have told me we had these type of returns, we were this percent distributed, yeah. we had this opportunity set." I would have told you we're raising this next fund on a Zoom call. You know, maybe an email. We we'll yeah. just send out an email. Who's in? All right, great. And uh, he said, man, I'm on a plane now going to foundations endowments I've never heard of before <laughs> to to do this. So, yeah, it's really bad. And, you know, people keep saying, when's it going to get better? There's such a huge need. The opportunity set so great. I'll give you my take, and you – critique it my take is that you literally have to have two years of underperforming your indices because you don't have exposure to oil and gas for somebody to go all right this is on the verge of costing me my job right you know or my fiduciary duty to this i think it's almost got to be that draconian yeah to get money back because i you know dan pickering came on the uh, podcast this summer, and he's like, "No, nah, man, returns and boom, we'll be back and make energy great again and yeah. all that." And I go,
1: "I don't think, I don't <laughs> think
0: so. I think it's harder this time."
1: Yeah, it, it definitely is. But even when you look at the indices, I don't think that it'll show up in terms of underperformance, but it'll be from the hit from inflation, where they their asset base isn't isn't returning. You know, say that the S and P is starting to get hit big time because inflation's hitting them so hard on the input cost side. I think it'll be more a piece of where they're underperforming big time because of that massive hit. If you look at the S&P, energy is like, I don't know what it is today, but say between 2 to 4%. Like It's so non-meaningful that it would be very difficult to underperform the the index just based on energy outperforming alone. Yeah. I think that no, takes that's like exactly a right. long time. Um, yeah. So I, but I think it's really going to take something like what's happening in Europe right now where... There's massive energy crisis that people are kind of realizing you can't flip from 80% fossil fuel-based economies to 80% renewable-based economies overnight, relatively speaking, and everything be okay and not break. And people actually get hurt in terms of like heating demand. This winter is going to be really, really high in in Europe. And there's not enough energy to support basically that call on energy because of like countries like Germany that have shifted so far to solar and wind. and they've pulled off their you know they've pulled back the reliance on fossil fuels just willy-nilly almost, um so I think it's going to take a crisis like that to make people realize that, hey, maybe we shouldn't stop investing in oil and gas, and they're not actually demons of the world, and they do support uh positive think, growth and positive outlooks for life.
0: Yeah, that would be the logical inference <laughs> to to make what worries me because I, I believe like the most constructive thing from their point of view that the environmentalists did is they convinced everybody that, that solar and wind would run all the power that we need. (laughs) Just the big bad oil companies won't allow them to do it. You know, it's just big bad oil that won't allow them to do it. I think we just get vilified. I mean, if people, if people die in Europe because you know, everything's cold and there's not enough heating, I think it's going to be the oil company's fault. And I don't know how we get out in front of that. I mean, you know, what's the messaging yeah. that we need to be saying today so that we don't get tagged with it? And I can't think of it.
1: No, I, I mean, even talking to Colin, where we've thought about, you know, some of the marketing ideas and strategies of providing a better light for oil and gas. And it's tough. I, mean, I think natural gas is a way to kind of have that bridge gap um, just because, one, it is a cleaner Burning fuel, and it's reduced our reliance on coal, which is you know much dirtier um, but i I don't know it's and even the narrative is so strong that I think you're right where oil and gas will be blamed somehow that this is all our fault for people having no energy to heat their homes or or live life with so it, it's a it's a challenging problem that I don't think there's an answer to right now,
0: yeah, I've been trying to think through the narrative because that seems to be the biggest issue we in yeah. the energy business need to be grappling with. And unfortunately, we're really shitty about marketing, right? Because we <laughs> we create a barrel of oil and we just sell it. You know, it's not like a Nike yeah. shoe where we're competing with Adidas and we've got to yeah, have some yeah. marketing pizzazz. We just here's our barrel, please buy it. Number two, yeah. no offense, but we're run by a bunch of fucking engineers, right? <laughs> you know? So I mean, talk about the least creative oh, uh, yeah. people on the planet in terms of of selling stuff. So. Yeah, it's something we need to think through and something we need to do to to get the story there. Because, I mean, your life expectancy doubles when you stop burning wood and shit oh, and yeah. actually burn hydrocarbons. It exactly.
1: doubles. Yeah.
0: And quality of life is immeasurably better, right? Yeah.
1: You know? No, the the logical arguments don't really apply to this arena when you start talking to various people. And so that's like the challenging part that— I don't know what gets them to come off high center to figure out that you still need fossil fuels. Um, And then I a piece of, so I do a lot of, one of my main roles now is to kind of, I do all of our investment underwriting and research of figuring out what's the next thing we need to invest in. Um, But on the other side of that is figuring out, I I really believe that given the right set of tools, you can probabilistically weight where commodity prices are going. Um, Not saying that I know to the T where oil is going to be in six months, but I can say with fair confidence, is it going to be higher or lower than today, which is really all we need to know about if we're making investment decisions. And, uh, but one of the pieces I've been exploring is the whole call on precious metals, base metals, and everything that's going to be needed to hit everyone's crazy EV forecasts that they have. Like Bloomberg has an insane EV forecast over the next 30 to 40 years where it's effectively hyperbolic growth. where is all of this like lithium going to come from cobalt manganese nickel no one has been able to answer that question and specifically the biggest problem is as you have accelerating growth of solar and wind on our us grid you have to have battery to decouple to couple up with that to actually have a sustainable power load where it's not fluctuating that you run out of wind at uh, in the middle of the day or solar at the middle of the night and so Ba- I think the battery, the call on those precious metals from just the battery installations on the grid alone, not even EV batteries, um, is multiples of what our current production is, and people aren't investing because you had a supply crunch on the lithium side back in, say, the early part of this or the early part of the 2000s, and uh, people stopped investing. It was similar to oil and gas, where there wasn't great returns, and so people didn't put money into it because lithium prices collapsed. Um, And the same kind of thing is happening now where there's not a ton of capital flowing into it that is necessary to kind of build it up over time. And not to mention that it's super dirty, the whole process of extracting all these metals.
0: Oh, yeah. Which no one
1: like. (laughs) Well, and
0: and I have back of the envelope the math, but I will say I did it after three glasses of wine. (laughs) So it may not be right. But uh, fact check me on this. Basically, the amount of oil reduction of consumption vis-a-vis gasoline, if we all start driving electric vehicles, is going to be a wash with the amount of diesel we have to use to mine all that stuff. I mean, people think that (laughs) you're mining, you just plug it into the wall in the middle of the Congo or wherever you are. (laughs) No, it all runs on diesel. I mean, there's some electric mining equipment and all, it all runs on diesel. So it's kind of like the the oil company sitting there going, all right, well, we'll we'll provide you diesel instead of gasoline. I mean, right.
1: Oh yeah. And I mean, there's so many unintended consequences that will come with the transition to where I was thinking about this question the other day and I haven't done the math yet, but with fleet vehicles. So Amazon is wanting to convert to fleet vehicles, all, all battery or some hydrogen. And it, Today, you can fill up your gas tank, you know, in 10 to 20 minutes and be on the road. So your total fleet size is theoretically less than it would be if you have EVs where you're going to buffer, you're going to build in a certain unutilized asset just because of charging time. And that's a piece where they have trucks running 24 seven. So you have to pull them out of service and that'll increase working capital needs on Amazon. It's probably not a problem, but for smaller mom and pops that are doing distribution, it will be a problem. Um, So there's just so many different unintended consequences that people haven't really thought through that come with these problems or with the proposed solution down the road.
0: So I drove a Tesla for six years Uh, and I also had a Hummer H2. So whatever (laughs) investor I walked into, it was like, oh, oil's going away. No, I drive a Hummer. You know, I burn gas like there's no tomorrow. Walk in. We're really concerned about the environment. I drive a Tesla, you know. So uh, anyway, one night get home for whatever reason, I didn't plug in my Tesla and I get into the car the next morning. It's got 80 miles on it. I live in Richmond, yep. which is, you know, 25 miles outside of downtown Houston. And I have a meeting in the woodlands. I've got something else and I'm driving in and I'm going, Oh crap. Cause there's not a charger in my building. I'm sitting there going, well, you know, can I go to the whole foods? Their chargers back then were like, 10 miles an hour, you know, type 12 miles an hour type charging. So I'm going, I can't do that. And I just walked in and I went to my assistant, Stacy, and I go, Hey, Stacy, I'm really sorry, but you're gonna have to drive my car to the supercharging station up north of town and sit there for an hour and a half, charge my car and bring it back to me. And she looked up and she goes, You've officially become a prick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, you know,
0: but uh yeah, no, there there are gonna be issues, although You know, Pickering's working on um, a business line that consults Yep. to, I don't know if you've spent any time hearing about that, but he convinced me that uh, it actually with fleets could make logistical and money sense. It's not just, we need to go electric to save the planet, that it truly could make sense on a money basis. Yeah. Are you tired of relying on landmarks? smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location. When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location. But figuring out how to get to location also comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to location is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed lease roads and gravel roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oilfield workers say they spend on average 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. That sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. WellSite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oilfield lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. WellSite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oilfield app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oilfield They've helped more than 100,000 oil-filled hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job listeners their first month free when you click the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free and you get a $10 gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I need to, because that's where I'm basically figuring out like what is the, because I, I understand concepts whenever someone says them, but I always have to do the math for myself more or less, so I can actually like really grasp it, and so that's where I'm working a lot on figuring out like what do these scenarios look like and what is it what does it do to businesses on a day to day basis, um, because everything is a, a push pull supply demand dynamic that you have to figure out where is that going over time, and so that's where. I've just started to spend more time on it because it's such a pressing thing that, on the base metals and mining side, no one's been able to answer my questions of where's the money coming from to hit, to fund all the growth on the the metals and mining like growth uh, piece. So it's it's. Have you interesting. ever heard
0: Mark Mills give his spiel about um, mining and what it takes? And- I
1: read his paper in 2018. It was like a 45-page paper, so I'm familiar with all of his theses, but I not the specific metric.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's out on YouTube. I've seen him give it a couple of times, but and I'll get these details wrong, but he's basically saying something to the effect of we're going to have to just move more 10 times more of the planet every year yeah. to get these metals because you know, with oil, you drill a hole that big, you know, whatever and and uh you know, you dump the Dump the the stuff out and you get your oil and you get your gas. I mean, to get these precious metals, you're like. Excavating.
1: Yeah, huge yeah exactly. <laughs> you're taking down a whole
0: mountain just to get a, a handful of this stuff. And yeah. so, yeah, it's just the achievement. I mean, put the capital aside. Just oh, yeah. the people, the resources yeah. to go do this is something human have never seen before. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's why. So, one thing that I really do like and I'm very bullish on is lithium recycling and battery recycling companies. So, um, Paul Sankey, who we all know, is I think he's done a lot of research on Lifecycle. Is he Kenny Lay? I don't. On Twitter. I'm trying to figure out who that is. Like, everyone is trying to figure that out, but I, I'm I a can big see fan, it. Mr. Lay. <laughs> I'm a big fan. We've got our Kenny Lay yeah. roll call. I could, I could definitely see it. He's a legend, though.
0: No, I, I better, I better shouldn't say that because you know (laughs) I am the official uh, podcast of uh, Roll Call. Yeah, and that may have just cost me that by trying (laughs) to out out Kenny like.
1: All right, backtrace, backtrace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Edit, but with so if you do assume though that the EV acceleration does come, which I think in some form it will, um, lithium prices will skyrocket just because of the supply demand dynamics. So lithium recycling or battery recycling, more specifically becomes, it's basically a binary call option on lithium price where there is a certain strike price that it comes in the money and below it, it's out of the money. And I think that's going to come pretty quickly. Um, The problem, though, is that companies like Lifecycle are really overvalued just based on today. And the things you have to believe for them to actually come to kind of that full valuation is challenging. But there will be opportunities like that on the energy transition side that do make sense. Um, It's just hard. Because I think they're like where we were in the shell industry in, say, oh eight to 2014, that there was a lot of promises made that were never kept and probably people didn't really believe. And so there's a lot of claims that are being made today on the EV side and renewable side that will never be met. Yeah, so you have to figure out who's, who's actually going to make the right money.
0: Yeah, now I remember back in the day when we had the internet boom and you had all these projections of numbers of users and everything. And you figured out that there had to be like 50 million people laying cable to every house, every minute of every day to even come close to those numbers. And you're going, how does that happen, man? I call to get cable and it takes a dude an hour and a half to hook me up for cable, much less internet service. So yeah, no, it's gonna be it's you know, I it's definitely a wave. I mean, it's happening. And there's nothing nothing to to say stop. I do think it's going to be a bubble. I mean, people are buying uh, on hopes and promises, kind of classic uh, characteristic of every bubble out there. Um, I'm debating on whether there's actually going to be any alpha. Are there going to be some individual winners out of all of that that we as investors could think through? Got thoughts there?
1: I think you will. So, companies like on the solar inverter side, um, there's people like Solar Edge and Inphase Energy that have solar inverters that are much better than the legacy solutions that allow you to have an easier installation in your house. And there's ways that they're incorporating technology that a couple of my friends actually have had. Like, so I was doing research on Inphase and uh, didn't really understand what they did, but then I was talking to a friend. He was like, "Yeah, it's like the best. They have this app that controls all these different things." And you get real time kind of analytics on your power usage um, and so I think there's companies on the technology side that will certainly benefit and they there will be alpha generating opportunities now, what's the right time to buy them, and do you buy them at thirty five times twenty twenty five eBITDA? Probably not, but there will be a correction because there always is after bubbles and uh I think that then you'll be able, if you're ready to pounce on the opportunities where there's differentiated service offerings or technology offerings, that you can make a lot of money um, kind of from there forward. But you'll have to be very careful and understand the technology really well and even understand like the consumer side too, um, to figure out what's the real value driver here versus what the company is kind of pitching and telling me.
0: Yeah, no, that's always tough because... You understand the technology, you understand what's better, but you're right. It doesn't always win out. Right. I mean, Betamax was a far <laughs> superior technology to VHS, you know, but didn't win out. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see there. The one thing that's embedded in your answer that I've always thought is a good way to play things like this, Bubbles, is in effect, you basically said the inverter for solar. So... The solar project doesn't have to make money right? because that's going to be challenging. We've seen that, but they all have to have widgets out there. Exactly. You know, and it's the, it's the, when you look at all the prospecting that was done in California, the guy that owned the dry goods store is the guy that made all the money. (laughs) We're going to sell
1: you the picks and shovels and you can go mine. yourself. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I've been trying to think through that. I just, in my mind i've gotten stuck with it's just going to be a huge bubble and and i yeah. don't even want to play
1: and there's like a whole aspect where i've gotten in arguments either on twitter or in person with people around the whole solar piece is effectively a rates trade where as long as rates are low and stay low the financing availability for consumers will be very high and so your market can keep growing at a rapid pace but as soon as rates start to go up to say Three percent or maybe four percent. I'm talking like the tenure here. Um, theoretically, your financing for your solar arrays will start to go away as they need to have other investments that yield a lot more than three or four percent. And uh, that's a piece where I haven't. No one has like kind of explained to me that that's not the way it will work. Where someone like Sunrun, their market, they have a huge TAM. Everyone's a TAM story. Whenever you start thinking about solar installations on either residential or uh, commercial buildings. So the TAM is very big, but no one is kind of diving into the financing structures and how are they putting together capital to actually put all this stuff to work at a very quick pace and meet that kind of growth rate that they say they're going to meet for their investors. And really the underlying assumption that I've come to is it's all based on low rates. And so once, you have, once those start going up, their financing might still be there there. Is, is it There might be subsidized capital that the government's saying you have to invest X percent in solar projects or something like that. That could happen. Um, But it will be much more challenging to get those projects financed. And we all know that once financing starts to go away, that corporate structures start to fall apart, um, as it did in shale with MLPs. Um, You had really, really high debt loads. Some of these companies are also levering really high because they're able to have 20 to 30 year contracts. Um, So it's really... Crazy dynamic that will probably unfold over the next five to ten years, um, but for me, it always goes back to like, what's the actual primary driver that then is everything else is a derivative of that. Um, but it, it's just a huge, complicated problem to kind of to think about.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's right. And you know, I still haven't done enough math, done enough research. So I'll ask you the question, and hopefully, you know the answer. I mean, at the end of the day, grossly oversimplifying as I have a tendency to do, is basically solar and wind just China exporting coal to the United States? You know, if you think about this, all the solar and wind stuffs made in China, right? Right. And they run off coal. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to build those things to transport them over here. At the end of the day, do they really? Generate in excess of the amount of power it took to make them, yeah. Or, I, or in effect, <laughs> is all we did was we good, burned coal in China, and boom, now we're uh, we've exported it to the United States. Hey, as
1: long as it's not here, as long as they're mining the coal somewhere else, it's okay. <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't know the energy equivalency. Um, it, I mean, it probably isn't, but I'd have to actually do the math. That's a good question.
0: Yeah. The uh, the other thing I realized since getting fired. Is so I used to have people that would do this, yeah. <laughs> you know. Kind of like you turn around and you go, "Colin, what about this?" And he goes, "I ah, screw you." Yeah. Okay. Well, oops. You're not yeah. going to do it. What? Yeah, you're not going to do it. What? What? So yeah, no, that's interesting. So what else? Give me another thing you've been looking at investing wise.
1: That's so right now. Everything is all the main workflow is figuring out what's going to happen next year. Um, just in terms of, so I'll put out like my, my 2022 forecast for us internally, figuring out. What are the various scenarios where crude and natural gas are going um, and so a lot of my work recently has been just on the fundamental analysis part and then the market side is something that throws a wrench in the works really quickly and that's a piece that you really have to listen to and so recently you know we've obviously had a massive pullback with omicron worries and all this stuff um, but on the I would say on the private investing side we're really looking at deals that it's not necessarily energy transition in terms of hydrogen or EVs or anything like that, but it's it's cleaner tech within oil and gas where you take a typical solution that, say, um, like, uh, we're looking at compression and decarbonizing compression, whether it be through electric motor drives or through cleaner technology of having methane recapture on your compressor units that makes it a lower um, emissions profile. And so that's like, looking at things like that are from the private investing side pieces that really interest us, where you're meeting basically both ends of the market that on the ESG side, you're appeasing everyone there because you're reducing the carbon footprint. But on the alpha generation and actual capital return side, you're still hitting solid returns um, because the outlook for oil and gas domestically is, is very positive for the next five or six years. And so we really believe that if we can find those solutions that are on like the newer age technology piece of legacy service offerings, that you'll have market share adoption growth, you'll have better pricing, you'll have better returns. Um, at the same time, you'll have that ESG rating that is theoretically going to be higher than that legacy offering.
0: Yeah. Let me be cynical here for just a second. And I, I actually think it's the right thing to do in terms of, Looking at our operations, how do we lower carbon emissions? And you're right. We don't need to be leaking methane into the air and all that other stuff. I think the problem we get, though, is as an industry, we just don't get credit for that. Yeah, I mean, we, we're still the big, bad, evil oil and gas company. And, you know, at the end of the day, if we reduced methane emissions by, you know, five times, six times, that should be a really good thing. And it ought to be celebrated. And I don't think we get credit for that. So I'm wondering what's gonna be kind of the impetus for us to continue to undertake these endeavors, other than just we're trying to do the right thing as an industry, you know? Yeah. Cause I I, I have absolutely no confidence that any regulator is gonna be able to put forth a thoughtful plan yeah. on doing this and they're just gonna propose shit show stuff.
1: For sure. And it I mean the incompetence of the administration on energy is baffles me where it's like, Oh, we released all this oil and gas oil prices are coming down, but gasoline prices aren't coming down. So that's like a whole tangent, but, um, the policy side, I think you have to have something like carbon taxation or trading that is put in effect where you'll have an economic incentive to where you have to start implementing lower carbon type production. And if you don't, you're going to be hit on that tax side. I think that'll be the ultimate catalyst that gets you to where Every company, even private guys, will start to have to adopt this because it'll just be so expensive to operate um, that if you don't do it, you won't make money and you won't be a viable company long term.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, name another industry where the end user consumer doesn't pay any price and we penalize the supplier of the product for supposedly ruining the world right i mean even with drug dealing the user goes to jail too (laughs) you know and so yeah that that's what just baffles me is it's big bad oil and gas companies we're gonna go beat them up and at the end of the day we can beat up all our companies in here in the united states guess what they're just gonna produce the oil in saudi they're gonna the russians are gonna do it venezuela ever gets its act together they've got more oil in venezuela than any other place on the planet and so it just It baffles me, and and I get it. It's politics. You don't want to cost people money because that ultimately costs you elections. But at the end of the day, it's like, just say it, guys. Yeah, you want less carbon? We got to raise the price on it.
1: Exactly. In the the U.S., I love like charts from Pioneer or Conoco or Chevron, where like if you and Pioneer is really good about doing this, where they'll show the carbon intensity of the Permian barrels versus like. Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and it's like way higher on the, the further end of the spectrum. Um, so, yeah, if you start getting barrels from Russia, it's obviously way more carbon intensive and they don't really care about emissions.
0: Yeah. So it, Saudis don't really care. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. No,
0: it's uh, – so, yeah, no, that, that worries me. But ultimately, I mean, ultimately, I think, one, I'll go ahead and say this, at the risk of getting canceled – I'm not sure we can pound the table and actually say that human generated CO two is causing global warming,
1: (laughs) right? That's a wormhole I'm not gonna go down. Yeah, exactly. Fair
0: (laughs) enough. Fair (laughs) enough. So I'm not even sure. That being said, I think we would be remiss if we as an industry weren't taking seriously that, you know, CO two parts per million is Gone, what, from 300, 325 in 1950 mm-hmm. to 425 today. It has gone up. And the climate has warmed right. a degree and a half since right. then. Um, and so, you know, I've been in a, in a greenhouse that's a thousand parts uh, per million CO2. It's kind of nasty in there. I'm not sure I want to do that. you know Air conditioning's a great thing and I get all that, but I like to be outside every once in yeah. a while. I wouldn't want to be outside on that. So so we do need to to be cognizant of that um, and start thinking about it. But I ultimately think the solution out of that is not going to be getting rid of hydrocarbons. It's just done too much for too many people oh, yeah. and it's immoral. To sit there and tell Africa, no, you shouldn't yeah. get to have the benefits we got in the United States or we have in Europe because you're exactly. polluting the environment. So I think it's ultimately gonna have to come from carbon capture. And the nice thing is, is God created something that does it. It's called a tree. Yeah. So you you would think we've <laughs> got to be able to figure this out, right?
1: Yeah. But on the so carbon capture is something that um We've looked at whether it be from the actual equipment manufacturing side or from um, the producer side of doing CCUS, and uh, I think so. There's this company called Sambita Factory, which I think Colin knows, uh, Moji and his sister over there. But they're the just how far out the technology is that they're making, and so they have a partnership with Oxy, where it's synthetic biology that basically they have this bioreactor that's taking CO2 as the feedstock running it through the bioreactor process. And then on the output side, it's making things like ethanol, glycol, just whatever designer bi- like microbiome biob that they've built produces that product. And so something like that is incredible where you think about, you can have massively carbon negative plastic production, oil production, just in all these various places that once they get to scale, you can start ramping it up and have you know a great solution. Um, direct carbon air capture is so challenging where I I don't know the specifics of like the metrics because I I didn't retain the information like too closely, but there was a facility in Norway that they built that's like the world's largest facility. And it's only going to capture like 0.001% just magnitude wise, roughly of CO2 globally. And so you think about how small those, how big this facility was relative to how small amount of carbon it's pulling out of the air. So that's not really the solution, but um, things like CCUS definitely do work where you're taking flue gas and, and pumping it back into the ground. Um,
0: it's sh- a logical
1: had- way to look at it.
0: I had Sean Mueller on the, uh, podcast and he's going to go out and create kelp farms in the yeah. ocean and just sink it. Yeah. You know, Absorb the, the CO2 and sink it to the bottom of exactly. the ocean. Yeah.
1: I like those Exxon commercials where they have like the giant, like field of algae and they're like we're a green bio company it's like, <laughs> that's always like that's how bad they are marketing those they're always using like these <laughs> someone in the hard hat going out in this massive field of algae that they're like circulating it's like that's not helping anyone
0: yeah no, that's awesome <laughs> yeah like i said engineers are so shitty oh it's, they're it's, trying to trying to market stuff
1: that's why i don't i never fit in really well with like with the engineering crowd um, i understand the technical concepts and stuff like that but it was I've always been more of an entrepreneur and someone that's like more of a people person and like networking and stuff like that. So I definitely get the critique though on the engineer.
0: (laughs) All right. So the forecast, are you ready to release? What do oil prices do next year? What do natural gas prices do next year?
1: Yeah. So not finalized yet, but I can give you kind of preliminary thoughts of like what's going to happen. I think that on the crude oil side, the Omicron variant, it could potentially have a near-term impact. It really is up to how much travel restrictions come in place. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a very temporary thing that's going to be max two to three months type of deal. Because you have waves of COVID that are just continuing to kind of come and go. Um,
0: that, that And we talked about this yeah. yesterday on BDE, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But generally speaking, when you have mutations of viruses yeah. that get out there, they're less virulent. Exactly. They just are because, I mean, really the only time in history I can think of was the Spanish flu and what was going on there is World War One, yeah. and we're trench battling, right? And somebody would get sick in the trenches with the Spanish flu and what would they do? They would drag them out a hundred miles to a hospital <laughs> where they brought everybody in that was wounded or whatever. Yeah. So they, in effect, transported the dead person dying because normally- if you get a if you get a pretty deadly virus, the host gets separated and dies, yeah. and that's the one time in history where we're like, "All right, <laughs> let's go ahead and just bring them into the rest yeah. of things, and we spread it." But you know, outside of that, generally speaking, mutations are good because yeah. they're going to be more contagious. They'll take over. You're going to wind up with your natural immunity out of it. So I'll get off my soapbox, but no, I th- you, I think the point you're making is. It's government reaction to it, not the actual virus. Yeah,
1: And even if you look at, so I, on a daily basis, I'll track, like Google has put out a really good mobility index. And so even in South Africa, where the variant is has cases skyrocketing, you haven't seen retail recreation mobility, which is one of the main correlations to gasoline demand. That hasn't really gone down yet. Um, same thing on the workplace mobility side. And then to the inverse of that, residential mobility, which is effectively more people staying at home. Um that hasn't skyrocketed yet. So, you haven't seen like the massive mobility impacts, which would be like the main concerning piece. And, and domestically, the really the only way that we're impacted, unless we do have lockdowns again, which I don't necessarily see that happening, that would be almost political suicide. Um, remember,
0: is- remember, <laughs> the worst time in a regime is when they're at the end and they know they're about to lose power. And if you're Biden, nice. you've got to be sitting there going, I'm losing the House and the Senate in 22. Yeah. Right? He's got to be thinking that. I mean, if, it's, he, if he's capable of thinking.
1: And this is probably bad on my part, but I don't follow the political landscape a lot unless it has regulations impacting either oil and gas or energy policy broadly. Um,
0: chicken shit. You just don't want to answer. That's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I really, I mean my, like, well, like we had Thanksgiving and everyone says don't talk about politics during Thanksgiving. Well, politics come up. And so I'm always the person that's like, I haven't, my Twitter feed is very curated to be energy only. And I also have other finance stuff too, like market related. Um, but I weed out a lot of the like crazy political stuff just because it doesn't really, at the end of the day, it's not impacting supply and demand. From a long-term basis, materially, right, and so it's more noise than anything. Um, but so that, yeah, politically wise, though, it, if if there were lockdowns, that would obviously be very detrimental to crude demand. But um, the thing that I think happens is that we come out, we may decline. I mean, I have market models where I'm basically trying to figure out net positioning real time of should you be adding exposure here, reducing it. Um, so I'm following a bunch of cross asset class correlations and metrics. So near term, there's a lot of uncertainty, and with oil volatility as measured by the OVX index at 75, crude's going to move like 3 to 5% daily minimum. Like that's, That should be expected. Um, but then when you look out as we get past this, because I think we will, demand is continuing to go up. We have jet fuel demand is, is roughly, say, 10% off uh, pre-COVID levels. Gasoline demand is hitting all-time highs. Um, you look at distillate demand and diesel demand, it's also hitting all time highs. And so you have refined products demand domestically has not, it's rebounded basically back to normals and we're starting to grow again. Um, and so we'll see demand growth next year. And then the other piece of that is obviously the supply side where I think that's the biggest problem that's going to happen that. People aren't, so frat count today, depending on what source you look at, we're basically just above maintenance capex levels where we're growing at say two to 4% a year, exit to exit. Um, That's not going to be enough to meet the demand growth that we're having here domestically. And then also from exports kind of re-accelerating next year, which has been one of the biggest hits that we had last year and, or this last year. And so what ultimately happens is that you have storage at, declining levels which i look at everything on a rate of change basis versus an absolute basis and so that leads to price spiking basically and opec is going to have their spare capacity bled out by say february april roughly that time frame and uh, their storage has been depleted so much that they're going to have to start refilling their stocks um, at the same time meeting accelerating exports globally from china from india from other countries that are kind of calling on their crude and uh, basically you run into the supply shortage scenario that we've seen with natural gas where you run into demand destruction levels and so that's kind of my base case for next year at this point is that we're going to hit say a hundred like the model that i've built is kind of ballparked it to like a hundred to 130 i think that's where we go to in early summer before we hit demand destruction levels um A lot of people have put out a lot of different pieces on at what level do we see demand destruction, but that's kind of the math that I've done that says that's where we'll go. The market always overshoots either to the upside or downside. We saw that in 2008, where um, from a fundamental basis, crude should have stopped out at say 100, 110 bucks a barrel, but the market obviously saw inflation, saw accelerating demand, um, energy shortages, and blew it up to say 150 that's probably going to happen and like be the scenario again. So I see that basically coming in the early part of summer, it might bleed a little bit later. And then we see crude pull back to, this is the part where I'm trying to figure out, because it's obviously this this huge nuance of how far do you pull back, but it's probably back into like this 60 to 70 range um, that we pull back to before you see kind of the sustained rise over the next five or six years. And then you get into the problem of U.S. inventory depletion where The Eagleford is getting really close to terminal decline. The Bakken is getting close to terminal decline. The Scoop Stack is like become a gas basin at this point with a little bit of liquids weight. Um, The DJ Basin is also becoming a little bit more gassy. So really you're left with the Permian Basin being the growth driver of not only the US, but down the road because of lack of investment globally on deep water offshore, on conventional plays onshore in Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, you're left with the Permian being the last resort supply on a long-term basis. And I think a lot of guys have overestimated inventory. So that's going to be like the longer term problem that keeps the cycle sustained over say a five or 10 year basis. Um, And the natural gas is always at like the whim of weather. And weather this year has not showed up in November. Models have it, you know, getting a lot colder in December through basically March with the, the peak being in January through March. Um, but I think that gas is tapped out in the low fives. Um, I could see us maybe overshooting again based on what happens with coal exports in China, with the European energy crisis as well. Because there's net gas is becoming a global commodity just with LNG exports and the coal dynamic too. Um, but I think that we're tapped out, and then the back end of the strip probably has to settle out at say 350 to 425 for producers to start ramping up capex in a more meaningful way. Um, and then you get an oversupply issue where long-term net gas, I don't like to do long-term forecasts. I I think on a 12 month rolling basis. And so for next year, I have the back end of the curve coming up to say 425, maybe. Um, but I think we, we basically are tapped out here near term.
0: So I'm always wrong about natural gas. I've missed it my whole career, <laughs> totally missed it my whole career. The whole associated gas thing and yeah. dropping it to a buck 50 totally missed that yeah and i was like nobody's drilling for it anymore you know it's yeah gonna be great. the thing that scares me about nat gas is i mean i remember looking at delaware basin deals and there was a line of demarcation out oh, west okay. If you get on the other side of that you're gonna have a 30 million a day well of, oh, yeah. of gas well that sucked at a buck 75 but at five yeah it makes a lot of sense so you know i think uh I I definitely think we've got a cap on natural gas prices but you're right I mean I haven't been able to process in my mind the numbers just given the fact that we really are able to export LNG these days Right. you know that that, that just hasn't settled you know it's in my growing mind.
1: too but I mean I think on the and there has been um I always butcher their name but GoRing Rosenwatch or however you say that those guys are like commodity forecaster. you right. have a fund? I'm not exactly sure their structure, but they put out a piece probably a year ago talking about Marcellus inventory depletion, which for some companies is real, but I think the Marcellus is really constrained just on basis where there's not a pipe, not enough pipe coming out of the basin. You're capped out and there's no more new pipes going in because of the regulatory side. So really the gas drivers are, you know, the Haynesville, obviously. Yeah. Um, there's a growing piece on the East Texas side, where guys like Rockcliffe are having pretty good well results. Um, the Barnett is resurging, which is really interesting. Um, and then the Scoop Stack could potentially see a resurgence. But yeah, the Delaware is, that's why compression is a pretty in- compelling story right now, at least on the Permian Basin side, because you have very large gas wells coming online that have you know a decent amount of oil too. Um, but Eddie Lee, really, it's like that northern Delaware piece where you're basically at the corner of Reeves County along the state line, um, with Eddie and Lee County in New Mexico. Those are pretty high gas content wells. And it's obviously a decent amount of liquids too. Um, but CapEx on the oil side hasn't accelerated as much. So that associated gas hasn't shown up yet. It probably does accelerate over time, but it's that's been one of my biggest misses this year, actually, was the the lack of price response from operators of accelerating CapEx into a 70, 80 plus dollar a barrel world where,
0: dude, we were just broke a year ago, man,
1: chill. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah. Because if the the correlations that I looked at where if you go back to 1970, um, every cycle where price has ramped, CapEx has ramped, not one-to-one ratio, but it's been a fairly strong correlation on an acceleration basis. And that didn't happen this time, which has been one of the first decouplings that we've seen it probably does come eventually but it's been producers have shown a lot of restraint on sending back cash to shareholders reducing capex and kind of staying at that I maintenance capex levels
0: so i think and i've mentioned this on the the podcast but i think one of the unappreciated things about capital availability to the oil and gas business because we talked about the red problem you just lost so much money you scared yep. investors away the green problem we talked about that but I actually chatted with a guy, call it March of 2020. I mean, literally the week before pandemic, quarantine, all that stuff. I was up in New York. My kiddo was doing Model UN. So I just told you know my folks at Kane, I said, hey, happy to jump on the phone, but I'm literally going to spend all week just talking to public byside side guys. Yeah. Just hear what they have to say. And w- one of the folks made a really good point about something was just, hey, you know why we gave you money? And I was like, no. And it's like, because of the optionality and the commodity price, you'd have a run. And if we missed that run, we were in trouble. So we'd always give you money so that we had a little bit of exposure to that. you guys have capped oil prices at $60 for the rest of our lives. There is no more optionality value there. Therefore, that's the biggest reason I'm not giving you capital. Yeah. And, uh, I hadn't really thought of that until then, but you know, thinking through it, it's like, sh- maybe he's right. I mean, I don't think we're capped yeah. at 60. Don't, don't take it that way, but the world thinks we're capped at yeah. 60.
1: Ooh, there was someone that coined the phrase, it was like the shale zone where they thought that prices were capped at like 60, 70, and then the floor is say $40 a barrel. And that was like the zone where having shale supply coming online, that was the piece that basically would keep it there. Um, BRV has talked about a lot about this on Twitter, but I think that his points around inventory depletion are real and the downspacing problem is going to continue to accelerate. And you'll probably see, one, not only the GOR ratios in the Permian Basin are increasing quickly, so that's a big problem in itself on the oil side specifically. Um, but people just aren't getting the spacing problem right even yet. And so that's like a piece where no one necessarily a ton of sections have been drilled with one or two wells. But when you go back to infill, you know, a full eight per bench, people don't really fully understand what that's going to happen after you've had those first two wells being producing for like five or six years.
0: I can guarantee you this. It's not linear. Yeah. It is not linear. (laughs) Because we, you know, when we were working on spacing in the stack, you know, we were sitting there going, all right, if we put too many, straws in the milkshake we just spent too much capital we'll figure it out we'll take some straws out next time and what was wild about it is at least in the stack 18 months ago if the right number was four straws if you put five in you didn't get all the milkshake out you (laughs) only got half of it and i've never seen that before yeah you know it wasn't a question of we spent an extra bit of capital for the fifth well it was like holy
1: cow the milkshake's
0: not coming out the so,
1: the whole Alta Mesa deal was eye opening and then Concho's dominator pad was like another example. Yeah. Um I think
0: No. Are they
1: stopped? Oh no. Oh no. I mean
0: you turned everything on, right? Okay.
1: Oh, really? Nice. All right. That's cool. All right.
0: Grab a what? Okay. All right.
1: Yeah, so I I think you'll see more examples like that where there's these downspacing issues and just the the volumes that people thought they could ultimately recover are not going to be there. And there might be technology down the road that gets you higher recovery factors, but We're going to need a step function change like we saw from 2016 to 2018 with the propagand, like more, more profit, more fluids. It's going to have to be something different though this time because. And I don't see it.
0: Yeah. I I don't see what it is. I mean, at least back then you had an idea of what it was. I mean, you really, you really did. You could, you could tell finer mesh sands were starting to work. You kind of knew what was going to happen and and some certainty that it was going to happen. I mean, we spent, call it 18 to 18 and 19 at Kane, basically cutting back frac sizes, Yeah, you know? And so I don't know that there is that technology of some sorts or completion practice or whatever yeah. it is, um, staring at the only thing I've, I've heard something about that might make some sense, but I don't have enough data on it is friction inhibitors mm-hmm. that, you know, we, we, blast away at the rock but we kind of forget you know hey friction stops it from coming out so i've heard there have been some successes there but yeah i haven't heard enough about it to know that it's truly working
1: yeah but it's to your point though it's not going to be the step function change that we saw from going from vertical wells to fracking vertical wells to horizontal wells to fracking them like each of those has been a step function over time and it I don't like. I have friends that work in R and D, but they're obviously you know heavily under NDA and can't share stuff they're working on. But it's not apparent to me what the next step function change is.
0: They're not happy.
1: Yeah.
0: Went to went to the bar with Bob, and he
1: was giddy. There's something (laughs) coming. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, so it like I think ultimately like your supply of last resort will be deep water offshore. Um, and domestically that's not easy to do because of regulations. And so it goes to places like pre-Salt Brazil. It goes to Guyana. It goes off the Western coast of Africa. And so there's all these different places where massive fields have to be discovered and produced. Um, because shale, while it has been very good, and it's been the growth driver for the last, say, six or seven years, um, it's it's probably not a long-term solution.
0: No, I mean, the the thought was that, and the I mean, when's the last time Exxon greenlit a yeah. Gulf of Mexico well? But, you know, the the thought was the majors will go onshore because they could toggle the capital on right. easier with uh, shale. And I think what we've done is we've killed exploration oh, by yeah. doing that, number one. And then number two, we've hit everything in the United States with the bigger hammer. Yeah. There's no more rock to hit with a yeah. bigger hammer. So, yeah, you're right. We're sitting there sorting through those pieces and – I mean, and uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it just it really seemed with the advent of 3D seismic kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, that that was the game changer in terms of exploration and right. figuring things out. I just don't know that there are any more big yeah. fields out there. I How mean, much more
1: reprocessing? You, can you do a seismic? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, I'm I'm wondering... Uh, so I think you're you're right on the supply side. Plus,
1: I mean, hell, three years from now, Exxon may not even be looking for oil anymore. Oh, I mean, it's did they have their investor day with the whole CCUS stuff? I I saw that it was a press release coming out. They're going to hold their whole decarbonization plan and like the lower carbon investments. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's incredible how fast these big beyond petroleum, how fast the companies yeah. have shifted. Um, and I, it's like they're being a very big company, obviously, has a lot of factors that go into how they're allocating capital. And they have a lot of external influences as well, like Engine 1, people like that. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see what's going to happen with their capital investment. And does it, does it get aggregated? And I think I heard a comment on one of your former podcasts of just asset management being aggregated to a few handful of players with like smaller guys below it. Does it go back to that where it's the Seven Sisters again? And you have maybe the big guys outside of the people that have shifted completely to green energy. And then you have all these small firms underneath them. It's going to be a a weird problem to look at. I mean, it's, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. No. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, at, at the, uh, at the end of the day, we need it. I mean, that's the thing everybody talks about. Oh, energy transition. It's like we burn more (laughs) wood today on the planet than we ever have before. We just need more yeah. energy. I mean, it's not a transition. Every it's every new form is additive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, I mean, it's linked to GDP growth. And as long as you have GDP growth, you're going to have energy consumption growth. And until you have a massively carbon light economy, that's just not going to happen. Um, I think nuclear is probably like the long, long-term answer. Um, but there's a lot of issues regulatory-wise and stuff like that that people just are super scared about. but.
0: That's Colin's favorite line. Yeah. He said it on BDE the other day that if we invented nuclear today, we'd be talking about,
1: oh, we've solved the yeah. problem. Here's <laughs> the
0: future. But, you know. It's the, like if money
1: doesn't matter, why does it matter if we're spending $40 billion on this nuclear plant? Like capital's free at this point.
0: Yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, dude, this has been fascinating.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. No, it absolutely.
0: I'm actually not disappointed that you're not the Robert <laughs> Smith. Although, man, Boys Don't Cry was one of my favorite songs for a long time.
1: I'll work on, I can't sing, but I can play the guitar in a few instruments. So I'll have to do something next time.
0: So, you know, it was interesting. Um, I used to always say this, three most underrated guitar players of, like, my life type thing. One, Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. Willie Nelson is actually a really good guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Number two, Prince, but I think Prince got his due yeah. in death, unfortunately. Um, but number three, Robert Smith. Yeah. Cause you know, he doesn't sit there and loop all that stuff. He actually plays yeah. what you're hearing. So yeah, always been a big, huge cure fan.
1: Yeah, it's my namesake.
0: <laughs> there you go. I like it. Tell Mr. Donovan I said hi. I will for sure. <laughs>